The following message is made available by First Baptist Church of Crosby, Texas. For more information or to help support our ministries, please visit us online at fbccrosby.org. Remain standing with me this morning as we start to read through the 119th Psalm together. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong but walk in his ways. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. I will praise, I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. I will keep your statutes Do not utterly forsake me. And all God's people said? Would you pray with me? Father God, in the moments to come, We're going to take your word and we are going to do our best to lay it out straight. To pour it into our own hearts, to pour it into the hearts of all those that are here in this room. And we do this with the hopes that that this word will serve as fuel to true spiritual fire. But Father, the fire we cannot provide on our own. The fire must come from you. It must come from heaven. And so Father, our request of you this morning is that um, as we as we seek to rightly handle and understand and see and proclaim your word that under the power of your Holy Spirit this place would turn into a raging inferno. A refining fire. That you would burn away what does not belong you would purify us that we would become more and more like the new creation we were called to be in Christ Jesus so father I pray that you would sharpen my mind that you would guard my lips you would help me to speak your truth to your people father we don't do this as a academic exercise We do this with a deep desire to glorify you, to honor your name, and to see you as you are. Father, we ask that you would do all these things now, and we ask them, coming to you in the only way we can, 
the name of your son, Jesus Christ, on account of his life, his death, his resurrection, in our union with him in faith. Father, we love you and we thank you. And it is in his name we pray. Amen. So we return this morning to our exposition of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. As I told you during our introductory sermon, I believe this letter is perhaps the highest and most majestic piece of writing in the history of the world. In my mind, this is the very pinnacle of God's revelation with regards to his redemptive work. It's as if Paul sweeps us up into heaven and gives us a truly cosmic view of our own salvation. Just a gorgeous panoramic view of all that God is for us in Christ. So as I told you, and we spent our time together, our first week in this book, just letting it all wash over us, allowing the beauty of this message to soak into our hearts and our minds and our souls. As I told you then, quoting commentator S.M. Baugh, the trees are beautiful in themselves, but the whole forest is where the vision of majesty dwells. Then last week, we came back down to ground level. You see, a man does not truly understand a text. A man truly does not grasp the meaning until he recognizes what this word says. In order to understand what this word says, we have to dig into the details. We have to take the thing apart. We have to explore the words and the phrases and the arguments and the way that the whole thing comes together. Coming to this word with a true desire to know what did the author mean by what he said. Now, as I told you last week, your understanding and love for Scripture will grow exponentially if you will pray before coming to it. I gave you permission last week. I confess to you that I do this. It is okay. It is right. It is good. It is pleasing to God that you would pray to him and ask him to give you a love for his word. He is not shocked to hear that you do not love his word the way that you should. That's a prayer he loves to receive and he delights in answering. So you pray that God would give you the love for his word that you should have. You pray that he would give you an understanding of what this word has to say. And then, having read this book several times, it's helpful to come to it with a list of questions. Who wrote this? To whom did he write? What elicited the message? And what type of writing am I looking at? Now I'll tell you that with regards to the book of Ephesians, that third question is far and away the most difficult to answer. What you'll find as we work through this letter together is there's not a lot of indications that with regards to some specific incident, a dispute, a particular heresy that the Apostle Paul is addressing in this. You'll find almost nothing setting that type of context. Those other three questions, however, they come incredibly easy. In fact, you don't even have to get out of the first verse in order to answer them. So I'd ask you to stand to your feet, please. We'll read this morning's text together. Look and see if you can't answer those other three questions. Who wrote this? To whom did he write it? And what style of writing are we looking at? We return to the book of Ephesians, the first chapter. This morning we read the first two verses again. This is the inerrant, infallible, sufficient, authoritative word of God. We're to submit to what it says. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus, 
and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. Father God, would you make this book live to me? And it would you show me yourself? Would you show me myself? Would you show me my Savior? Would you make this book live to me? It's in your son's precious name we pray. Amen. So we answered question one last week, didn't we? Who wrote this? Paul. We spent the entirety of our time last week asking the question, who is this man called Paul. Now the second question, to whom was Paul writing? Well, God willing, we'll spend the majority of our time together on the next Lord's Day fully unpacking that question. But you can look very quickly here and see to whom was Paul writing? To the saints who are in Ephesus. So this is from Paul to the saints in Ephesus. Now what about that fourth question? What kind of writing is this? Well, it certainly reads like a letter, doesn't it? Now, Unlike contemporary letters where what we like to do is we begin a letter by telling the people we're writing to who they are and we don't tell them who we are until the very end of the letter. People in the ancient Near East, they began by introducing themselves. Before any real introduction to the letter, before any great greeting, before any kind of a benediction, they begin by telling them, I am who is writing to you. And who do we find? It is Paul. We know from the beginning of the letter Immediately when we open it, who's it from? Paul. It says right here in the very start, a letter from Paul to the saints who are in Ephesus. Now we know that Paul had two names. We talked about that last week, didn't we? Paul was a Jewish man that was born with Roman citizenship. Like most men in this type of situation, he had two names. Saul was his Hebrew name. We have to imagine probably that he was named after a fellow Benjaminite, King Saul. In addition to that, his Roman name was Paul. Now, this was probably not his full legal name. He would have had a family name. Many men would have had three names. But in all of Paul's letters, in all of the New Testament, we find him referred to generally in one of two ways. Either Saul of Tarsus or simply Paul. Let me show you what I mean here. I'm going to read to you now the introduction to nine out of Paul's 13 letters. Very briefly, just the first sentence. Romans 1.1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle. 1 Corinthians 1.1, Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. 2 Corinthians 1.1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Galatians 1.1, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Ephesians 1.1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Colossians 1.1, 1, 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. 1 Timothy 1.1, 1, 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God our Savior and Christ Jesus our hope. 2 uh, Timothy 1.1, 1, 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Titus 1.1, 1, 1, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Christ Jesus. How's that for consistency? Clearly, that's Paul's signature. Clearly the thing that Paul wants the recipients to know about him. Over and over and over again, some version of this, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Now God willing, we'll spend our time together on the next Lord's Day trying to rightly understand the phrase, by the will of God. 
But for this morning, we seek to answer three questions. Number one, what is an apostle of Christ Jesus? Number two, what is it about that that makes that the primary thing that Paul wants to make sure the recipients of his letters know about himself? And thirdly, what, if any, effect should this have on the way that we read this letter? So first, what is an apostle? Now, my, by my count, the Greek word apostolos is used 79 times in the New Testament. Now, a few of those times, it simply means messenger. That's how we find Paul using the word in Philippians 2.25. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, soldier and your apostolos. It's translated here messenger. And your messenger and minister to my need. That's perhaps the simplest definition. An apostolos, an apostle, is a messenger. Sometimes that word carries no further meaning than that. Simply a messenger. Now it's certainly true of Paul that he was a messenger. The greatest messenger in all the New Testament. Taking the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ far and wide to the ends of the earth. But surely he means more than that with regards to himself. Because you'll notice that Paul doesn't merely refer to himself as an apostle. He refers to himself as an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the word of there is very helpful. You English majors, you, you grammar type folks, you'll know that's a gen, genitive. It, it indicates possession here. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. Paul, one of Christ Jesus' apostles. Paul, an apostle who belongs to Christ Jesus. So think back to us. Did Jesus have apostles? What do we learn whenever we walk through the Gospel of Mark? Is there any indication that there were men who were his apostles? Well, certainly. You remember all the way back in the third chapter of Mark's Gospel, Mark 3, 13 to 19. Now, the stage was set for us by Luke. What Luke tells us is that Jesus had gone up onto the mountain and he had spent all night praying. Then when the sun comes up, we read in Mark 3, verse 13, and Jesus went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed 12 whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boazerns, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who would betray him. So Jesus called these men. We're told that these are men who he desires. He appointed them so that these men might be with him and then that he might send them out in his name to preach the gospel with the authority to cast out demons as we read in Matthew's gospel with the authority, the power, the ability to heal the sick. So this makes the picture perhaps a bit clearer, doesn't it? An apostle of Christ Jesus is a messenger, yes, but more than this, he's a messenger who has been chosen and called by Christ Jesus himself, set apart from the others. Now see, we'll, we'll often have trouble, particularly in our early stages as a Christian, particularly in childhood, we'll often have trouble differentiating between what is a disciple and what is an apostle. Now this can be confusing when we come to the scriptures because sometimes these same 12 men are referred to as disciples. In other places, they're obviously referred to as apostles, but these words, they're far from synonymous. We know that a disciple is simply a follower. 
Every single one of you that counts yourself as a follower of Jesus Christ, every single one of you that are in Christ because you've come to him in repentant faith, you are a disciple. We ourselves are called to be disciple makers. By the way, that's the real meaning to the Great Commission. Jesus did not say, go out into all the world, share the gospel, and wish them the best. He says that we're to make disciples of all nations. You are disciples. Matter of fact, you are disciple-making disciples, I hope. A disciple is simply a follower of Jesus Christ. Now, you remember that during Jesus' earthly ministry, at various times, he had hundreds, perhaps thousands of disciples. Now, some of these men, they were fickle and unfaithful. Think about what we saw in the synagogue in um, Capernaum. After Jesus had fed the 5,000, the men chased him around the Sea of Galilee, and they came to him. They were looking for more of this miraculous bread, more of this supernatural food. And they come to Jesus with a desire to follow him, thinking he's going to be their miracle man. And yet his Jesus' teaching got difficult. As he pushed him to come to him for something so much deeper, a true spiritual relationship, to find their very sustenance in him, not in the gifts that he provides. He began to talk about things like eating his flesh and drinking his blood. We read in John 6, verse 66, after this, many of his disciples turned their backs and no longer walked with him. These disciples showed that they had not followed Jesus in true repentant faith. They were not following him in the spirit. They were seeking to follow him in the flesh. And when his call confronted their flesh, they walked away. They no longer wanted to be his disciples. It seems as if this was the case for the vast majority of Jesus' disciples in that day. Sadly, I'll tell you, I'm afraid that's the case for the vast majority of so-called disciples today. They're happy to follow Jesus as long as he's the Jesus of their making. They're happy to follow Jesus as long as he tickles their ears and gives them what they desire. But the minute his calling comes crashing into their fleshly desires, they're not so keen on him anymore. But that wasn't the case with all the disciples, was it? There were some faithful and true disciples. I can't help but think about Mary Magdalene and the other women. They had been with Jesus. They had followed him faithfully. They had ministered to him and to the other followers. They stayed with him all the way up through the crucifixion. They were the first to go to him. They're in the resurrection, seeing the empty tomb for themselves. They too, just like the 12, they had been faithful in following after Jesus Christ. They too had taken up their cross, had denied themselves, and had followed him. But they weren't called to Jesus like the 12. They weren't set apart unto Jesus. They weren't chosen to be with him and hear things that only they would hear to see things that only they would see, to be commissioned and appointed by him to go out with his authority. And this is the real crux of it all. It's the word authority. Outside of the Bible, you'll find the word apostolos. You know that Greek is not just a biblical language, that men actually spoke it in real life. And you'll find that same word apostolos. It can be used of something like a bill of lading, like an like, like a letter of authority, particularly in the shipping world. A captain might carry an apostolos, something with him that says when he arrives at his dock of port or whatever it is, that shows I have the right to be here. I have the right to pass through this place. I've been given the authority by someone else as indicated by this letter, by this document, to carry out the mission that I've come to do. Sometimes it would be the admiral or the, or the man in charge of the ship, the one that bears these letters. He would be called by this name, apostolos. 
But what you must understand is the authority comes not from the one carrying the letter, not from the letter itself, but from the one who has done the sending. All authority that apostles carry is a derived authority. It is a received authority. It is an authority that finds its grounding and its basis and its power and its reality and the one who has done the choosing and the calling and the sending. And so that an apostle, as an emissary, an ambassador, he cannot have greater authority than his master. To put that another way, a man cannot grant an authority to anyone else that he himself does not possess. I can call and choose and desire any one of you to be sent to the local bank with my authority as my apostle to withdraw a million dollars. You will show up in that place and find out that that authority amounts to nothing because that's not an authority that I possess. You can only send a man out with authority that belongs to you. And that's clearly what we see with Jesus Christ. We've seen the nature of his authority, his exousia, all throughout the scriptures. Jesus commanded and the demons fled. Jesus spoke and dead men rose, to the, rose from the grave. Jesus touched a man and he no longer was lame but was leaping and shouting and singing praises to God. Jesus has displayed his complete and total authority and power and dominion over all things throughout his whole life, making it so clear that he had the authority that could only be attributed to God. And this points us to something truly beautiful. If you look in Hebrews 3, the very first verse there, we are called to consider Jesus, the apostle, and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him. Jesus was an apostle. I hear pages rumbling because you think I didn't, I missed that, right? You think I just inserted that. Go look. Jesus was an apostle. He was sent forth by his father coming to us to deliver the message of eternal life. That's why we hear Jesus saying things like in John 12, verse 49, for I have not spoken of my own authority, but the Father who sent me. He himself gave me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know, I know that this commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Jesus came, sent by the Father, speaking in the Father's authority, saying only those words that his Father gave him to say. And then from that same place, he entrusts his authority to these 12 men whom he desired and he chose and he called to himself. And early on in this process, we see Jesus sending these men out after a time of training, almost like these miniature expeditions, these, just these trial runs as they would go out in the authority of Jesus and they would come back amazed. It worked. In your name and in your authority and in your power, demons fled. People were healed. The word was received. And we see him confirming this as he comes to the end of his, he comes to the end of his time here on earth with his death and with his resurrection. We see Jesus coming to the, coming to the 12, John 20, verse 21. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and he said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Do you see the picture? The beloved son, the conquering Christ. As the son of God, all authority had always been his. He did not need to ask another. 
all the power, all power, all authority, all dominion, as the Son of God, as fully God, as a member of the Godhead, it had always been his. But as Jesus Christ, the God-man, as the Messiah, as the Christ, it was in that moment that he could say, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me by the Father. And he could look at these men and he could send them out in that very same authority. You realize that was the basis for the Great Commission. That was the basis for our charging ahead. That was the basis for our marching orders. It wasn't you're all swell people. It isn't I'm sure you've got this. It was all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And based on that authority, I now send you out just as the Father has sent me. Go make disciples. So they did. They went forth as ambassadors, working and teaching on his behalf and his name as true uh, representatives in the authority of Christ. They healed, they cast out demons, they proclaimed the good news. And it was on the basis of that authority. There's pictures where, there's pictures in scripture that I, I really wish we could have some bracketed notes perhaps, just, just some insight into what was going through the men's hearts and minds in these moments. But we see a scene in Acts 3 where Peter and John are walking along and they see they see a lame man there and he's he's begging, he's, he's asking for alms. And I can't help but imagine that Peter looks at John and John looks at Peter and they go, okay. He's in heaven now. He's in his spirit. Here we go. So seeing Peter, this is Acts 3, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, this man asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and he said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk, and entering the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. We see pictures in the book of Acts of just the shadow falling off of Peter, healing people. People taking the, the handkerchief or the, the, the hem of the garment. We see incredible healing ministry, casting out demons, incredible power. We must know there's a purpose for all this. We talked about the purpose in the healing. We talked about the purpose in casting out demons. We talked about the purpose in walking on water. We talked about the purpose in the bread. We talked about all that when we walked through the book of Mark together. The purpose was to authenticate the messenger and the message. To make clear that this is a word from God. That the one who has sent me has authority over all creation. Over the spiritual world over the natural world, over all things. This is a message to be received and heeded and obeyed. It was an authentication. It was a proof that they had in fact been sent forth with the authority of Jesus Christ, the one who did these very same works. And so whenever we begin to think about that, okay, if an apostle is more than merely a messenger, if apostle is to be called truly an apostle of Christ Jesus, then we have to pull all of this together. An apostle isn't a follower of Jesus Christ, who has been set apart. He's been desired and chosen by Jesus himself to be with him extensively. You remember these men, they left their former lives. They walked away from their families, from their businesses, from their former way of life to come and be with Jesus, to have access to his teaching, to eat his food, 
to hear his prayers, to sleep with him under the stars, to see miraculous things that other would, others wouldn't be given access to, to hear teaching that others wouldn't hear, and then at the appointed time to be sent out with his power and his authority to do mighty works and say the things that the Father had given him to say that he had given you to say. The picture rounding out for you some? This is truly a remarkable thing if you think about who these men were. Even if you think about who they continued to be, how weak and faithless they were. You think about what happened on the night of Jesus' arrest as he was grabbed and he was carried off, and they all scattered. Peter, the one that was so confident, the chief of the apostles, he was so confident that he would not flee, denying Jesus three times and swearing a curse upon himself rather than being associated with the Lord in any way. Another of the 12, Judas Iscariot, he was the one who would betray Jesus, betraying him with a kiss, handing him over to the men who sought his life. We know very clearly that these apostles, that Jesus didn't then scan the horizon and say, who are the super Christians that I might call them to myself? He didn't hold additions. He didn't receive resumes. He didn't rely on guidance from other men. Under the working of the Holy Spirit, he chose these he desired, and he knew exactly who they were. Even Judas, a devil. He looked into the hearts of Peter, and he knew, you're a coward. He looked at James and John and said, boys, your mouth is going to get you in trouble. And still he called them, because this is the way of God. He chooses the weak. He chooses the simple. He chooses the lowly. He chooses the foolish, so that it may be seen that all is from him. Salvation righteousness, goodness, faith itself, that it all comes from God. And so God was neither caught off guard nor was he tempted to abandon his course whenever he saw that these men were truly some of the most messed up dudes on the face of the earth. And as a matter of fact, I would point back to their life and I would encourage you with the reminder that their very sins were used by God to equip them for the ministry. I try to remind you of this often. Your sins and the grace of God and light of your sins may be some of the most fundamental and sweetest moments in all of your Christian life. Those moments that feel like death when they catch up with you. For the true child of God, as you experience his grace and his mercy and his goodness. You see, I... I can tell my girls that I will never forsake them. I can tell my girls that I will never abandon them. But it isn't until that's tested and I don't run for the hills that they understand. I'm not telling you to run out and sin so that grace may abound. But I'm telling those of you that find yourselves in the middle of sin and you think that life is over. Watch the way Jesus does not forsake you. And watch the way you can point back to those moments and say those were the days. Those were the days when my faith grew. And you can look forward as you walk with other brothers and sisters in sin and trial and suffering and say, let me tell you how faithful he is. God not only knew these men's sins, he used them. But if that's what it means to be an apostle of Jesus Christ, to have been called to him on this mountain, to have walked with him through his three-year earthly ministry, to have heard these things, to have seen these teachings, and then to have been sent out on these trial expeditions and then sent out like this, then how could Paul 
possibly claim this title for himself. Sure, Paul was a fantastic messenger. Again, I say the most marvelous messenger in the history of the church. The foremost author of the New Testament. The greatest missionary the world has ever seen. But he had not been called and chosen and received by Jesus on that mountain like the other 12. He had not been with Jesus during his three-year earthly ministry. In fact, we are given no indication. We don't have any real clue as to whether Paul had ever actually met Jesus in the flesh. If they did meet, I assure you, it was not as a faithful disciple. It was as an adversary and an enemy. What did we talk about last week? That Paul so despised Jesus Christ and the gospel that he proclaimed that he dedicated his life to destroying the church. He could not have possibly met the criteria that we've just laid out for the other 12, for the other apostles. Now, lest you believe that I'm being too narrow in my definition of what it means to be an apostle of Jesus Christ, think back with me as to what happened whenever they recognized that they needed to replace Judas the traitor. After addressing the infant church, it was about 120 believers, Peter affirmed that Judas had abandoned his office and therefore he needed to be replaced. Now, allow me to digress for a moment. This is important, I think, because there's a number of professing believers today that they continue to hold on to the idea that men are still becoming apostles of Jesus Christ even now. But what Peter said, what Peter made clear was that Judas had turned aside. Judas advocated his office and went to his own place. The office was vacated by sin and betrayal, not by death. He says, there's men today that say every time an apostle died, whether by suicide or some other way, he needed to be replaced and that's why he was replaced. But that's not what Peter said. He turned aside and went to his own way. He abandoned the post. He abandoned the office. And so then, in addition to that, listen to the requirements that Peter lists when he talks to the brothers about how they'll choose the apostle of Jesus Christ that will replace the man. Acts 1, verse 21, they said that whomever would replace Judas must have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us. One of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. They, of course, put forward two of, honestly, my favorite names in all of Scripture. Honestly, legit. If I ever had a little boy, I think Justice would be high on that list. J-U-S-T-U-S. That's a cool name. And the other, of course, being Matthias. And so they cast lots. They ask God. They ask for God's blessing. They ask for God's guidance. And then they cast lots. And they choose Matthias to join the 11. I had an interesting thought this week as I read through this. We're not told that God told them to replace Judas. I'm not promising you they did wrong. God's sovereign over all things, and this is what it is. But we're not told that we were told that. I, I wonder how that plays in with the calling of Paul. I'm not real sure. Not a major point. But anyways, so, if being with Jesus throughout his entire earthly ministry, if being able to provide eyewitness testimony to his resurrection, if being set apart by Christ himself is a prerequisite to being an apostle of Jesus Christ, then the list of candidates, it shrinks rapidly, and eventually it completely disappears, doesn't it? You'll notice that even amongst the early church fathers, even amongst those faithful men, think about men like Polycarp, who was a disciple of the apostle John. That's, that's as close as you can get, isn't it? A disciple of the apostle John you find in his writings, he never refers to himself as an apostle. A bishop, an elder, a shepherd, a presbyter, 
but never an apostle. And so I suppose that any man today that desires to call himself an apostle, he's free to do that as long as he's doing it in the broadest sense possible. Maybe he's an effective missionary, maybe a church planner, truly a messenger. If a man wants to use that title apostle, he can use it in that way, I suppose, and not technically be wrong. But the reality is, more often than not, it seems prideful, self-aggrandizing, and confusing to everyone else. So don't do that. Don't follow after men who do that. But back to the question at hand, where does that leave Paul? Well, there were certainly some people that questioned Paul's apostleship, weren't there? We read in the second letter to the Corinthians. He, he seems to give a defense of this because apparently what happened was after Paul had done his work there, the ministry was flourishing, the gospel was growing, people were being saved. That is always going to attract, attract the wolves. Dear brothers and sisters, you must hear me well. The world looks at us right now and they think we're a sinking ship. I don't know how many times I've heard from people, is there anybody even left at First Baptist Church of Crosby? And I say, yes, yes there are. Yes there are. But because the world thinks we're a sinking ship, the wolves aren't lined up to get in because they don't see any power and prestige to be had here. Dear brothers, but if and when they find out what's actually happening here, the wolves will show up. Because men always want to jump in where there's work. They want to build a reputation for themselves. They want to build a name for themselves. And that's exactly what happened in Corinth. These men, Paul, they're, they're false prophets. Paul, I, I think Paul is mockingly speaking of them when he calls them super apostles. You think that's right? <laughs> he calls them super apostles. They were seeking to take advantage of what was happening there in Corinth. They were seeking to teach a gospel of their own, a distorted, a damning gospel of their own. And here's what you do. When you can't refute the message of the gospel, when you can't reason it, when you can't show from Scripture why it's wrong, what do you do? You attack the messenger. That's what these men did. In order to attack the gospel, they had to first cast doubt upon the man who had delivered it. And so we shouldn't be surprised then that we find in Paul's writing to this church numerous occasions where he's defending his apostleship. First, uh, 2 Corinthians 12, 11 to 12. I have been a fool, but you forced me to it. For I ought to have been commended by you. For I was not at all inferior to these super apostles, even though I am nothing. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. Then in Paul's first letter to that church, he says this, 1 Corinthians 9, 1 to 2, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not apostle, an apostle, at least to you I am, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is beautiful. This is beautiful. Now the context here is he's teaching the church about their freedom of conscience, to eat whatever God would allow them to do as long as they do so in a way that does not offend or cause their brother to stumble. And he comes back and he says, and I have the right to speak upon this because you have seen the way that I did not exercise my own apostolic freedoms among you. I did not demand all that I could. I did not use my position as a thing to be held over you because I loved you and I cared for you and I wanted to, wanted to nourish you. And so he says, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? And then listen to the two evidences he gives to his apostleship. 
First he says, have I not seen Christ? We'll come back to that. And then he says, are you not my workmanship in the Lord? He says, you want to see proof of my apostolic calling? Look to yourself. This church that I have founded, see your own salvation that came through my preaching. I came to you and I did these apostolic works, these miracles, these wonders, these works to prove that I had come in the authority of Christ and that my message was to be heeded. And the proof is in the pudding. You are the seal of my apostolic ministry. You are the seal, the proof that I am an apostle. You are my workmanship. And he said before that, and have I not seen Christ? Remember, that was one of the requirements, isn't it? You must have seen the risen Christ. And Paul is confirming here, I've done this. I've I've seen Christ. How? On the road to Damascus, for one. Do you remember this? Paul was going along the way, seeking to persecute the church. A brilliant light comes upon him and blinds him. The voice from heaven. And what does it say? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He says, who are you, Lord? I'm Jesus of Nazareth. It met Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. In addition to that, we read in the 18th chapter of Acts that as Paul was spending time in Corinth, the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent for I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you for I have many in this city who are my people. Again, in the 22nd chapter, as he's pointing back to his first days after his conversion, he says, when I had returned to Jerusalem and I was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, saw him saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. So it seems as though... The Apostle Paul had not only seen Jesus on the road to Damascus, he saw him at times when he needed strengthening and confirming and and encouragement to continue on in his ministry in a particular town, that he also saw Jesus at times when he was told, you need to run because these people will not receive you, and the time of your death has not yet come. So at least on three occasions, we can say with confidence, the Apostle Paul has seen the resurrected Christ. It was different than the way the other apostles saw him. It, It wasn't during his earthly ministry, it was from heaven. It was a vision, a heavenly vision of who Christ was. This is why Paul would write, 1 Corinthians 15, 3 to 9, I delivered to you of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, Last of all, as one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I'm the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Paul had seen Christ. He calls himself one untimely born. More than this, Paul had also been commissioned by Christ. He hadn't only seen Christ. He had been chosen and called and set apart and sent out. We'll talk more about that calling, God willing, next week. But remember the message that he received. We read these words last week from Acts 26, verse 15. And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet. For I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. 
Paul was called. Paul saw Christ. Paul was called by Christ. Paul was desired and chosen by Christ. Paul was set apart by Christ. And then Paul was sent out to be an apostle to the Gentiles by Christ. Again, we'll unpack this in greater detail next week. But clearly, the apostle Paul had all the credentials, all the making, all that was necessary to identify himself as a true apostle of Christ Jesus. That brings us to our second question. Why is that the thing that Paul most wants the recipients of these letters to know about himself? The Apostle Paul had some truly amazing things going on in his life. From time to time, he would point to some of those, not as a means for building himself up, for puffing himself up. As a matter of fact, what you'll find is that the Apostle Paul, he goes to great lengths to make sure that there is nothing about himself or his ministry that would in any way detract from the glory of Christ from the beauty of his message. And yet there was so much about the Apostle Paul's life that would have commended him to us, isn't there? Plenty of evidence to the veracity of his claim to be a true ambassador for Christ. Think about the unparalleled nature of his conversion. How many people love to talk to you about something amazing that happened in their conversion and how they knew on that day they'd been chosen by God for something wonderful? He had an unparalleled conversion. Think about the brilliance of his theology the eloquence of his writing. Think about the innumerable men that had earned salvation, had received salvation, excuse me, through his teaching or through the teaching of other men that he had trained. And still, Paul was supremely careful to make sure that he only boasted in his own weakness. The power of Christ through him, never in his own experiences. I've got to point one of them out to you. Back to 2 Corinthians. This is a text familiar to many of you, I'm sure. Probably confuses most of you. 2 Corinthians 12, 1 through 5. I must go, on, must go on boasting, though there is nothing to be gained by it. I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up into the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. But God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. This man was Paul. Makes clear that it was him. Paul is speaking about himself, and Paul was caught up into heaven. An experience unlike anything we could ever imagine. He was taken, and he was told things that cannot even be uttered by men. How is this not the first thing you tell everybody you meet? I've met some men that have done some really cool things in life, and I'm always amazed that the first time I meet them, they're not like, how you doing? Jim Smith killed a bear with my hands. I boast about things that I just kind of think I've done. Wouldn't you think, though, that would be the, 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 the basis for his writing? I'm Paul. You may have heard of me, the dude who went to heaven. I got some things to say. He could have been a millionaire. But he only mentions it once in all his writing. And immediately he goes on to talk about his weakness. He talks about how God humbled him by giving him this thorn in the flesh and refusing to remove it. He wants to very quickly shift the conversation. He says, look, much like he does in other portions, he says, if anyone has room to boast, it's me. I'm the dude that went to heaven. And instead I boast in Christ's strength and my weakness. He shows us all throughout his ministry. You want to know the marks of a true believer? You don't know what it really looks like how you can truly determine that a man knows that he is in Christ Jesus and counts Jesus as his ultimate treasure and his only hope. Do not look for big and powerful ministries. 
Do not listen for lofty speech and wonderful words. Do not get caught up in some one-off spiritual encounter. You watch the man's weakness. Does that weakness drive him deeper into Jesus Christ? You watch the way he relies on the Lord. You take note of the way that he presses deeper and deeper when the suffering comes. This is the mark of a true man of God. This is the mark of a true believer. Not personal, private experiences. Not supernatural visions. Not even being able to claim that you have won men by the thousands for the name of Jesus Christ. How did you suffer? How did you boast in your weakness? And how did that weakness drive you into him? And still, has any man had greater opportunity to boast in his suffering and in his weakness than the Apostle Paul? Yep. Could he have begun every one of his letters by the Apostle Paul, the dude that almost died so you could hear the gospel? You owe me one, so listen up, suckers. But he doesn't do that. He begins every one of his letters, or at least nine of the 13, and there's a tenth of it in the other four, by referring to himself as an apostle of Christ Jesus. Why? Why? Because the real authority is found in Christ Jesus and nowhere else. Nothing in us, no experiences in us, no thoughts in us, nothing we've accomplished for the sake of the kingdom. Not only were these apostles sent out by Jesus Christ with the authority to do the mighty works that he had done, not only were they sent out by Jesus Christ to speak only the words that they had heard him speak, but when they spoke, they uttered the very word of God. I need you to listen to me. I am not saying that these men were sinless and infallible. Paul calls himself the chief of sinners. He confessed that the good things I want to do, I do not do, and the things I don't want to do, those things I do. You remember how he had to confront Peter for being a hypocrite to his face. These men were not perfect and they did not become infallible and yet God spoke through them by his spirit. When these men taught and preached and wrote as apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ, they were delivering the word of God. Jesus promised this would be the case. In the upper room, the night of his arrest, John 14, 25, these things I have spoken to you while I'm still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things, all things, and bring you to remembrance of all that I've said to you. John 16, 13, when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Jesus taught the truth, the word of truth to these men. And then when the Spirit came, he not only brought them to a remembrance, but to a deeper understanding. And then through him, he spoke. That's exactly what we see playing out. Think about what a mess Peter's theology was, along with the others. Even after the resurrection, at the time of the ascension, they're still worried about some earthly, immediate kingdom in Israel. And it wasn't until the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit coming upon them in power and might, that he stands up and he boldly proclaims, he boldly delivers the greatest the first sermon in the history of the church because the Holy Spirit was speaking through the apostle. The powerful and authoritative word of God delivered through these chosen vessels. These ordinary men. Now we could perhaps say that Paul is extraordinary. He was extraordinarily wicked. 
He was extraordinarily opposed to the kingdom of God. He was extraordinarily deceived. He was extraordinarily heading headlong into the pits of hell. And yet by the work of the Holy Spirit, this now holy apostle, it was through him that this message was delivered. And the apostles knew it. That's the amazing thing. These men, they knew it. They knew that when they spoke as apostles of Christ Jesus, they were delivering the word of God. 1 Thessalonians 2.13. We also thank God consistently for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it. Not as a word of men, but as it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. Paul knew it. Peter knew it too. You remember in his second letter, 2 Peter 1.21? For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of men, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. God spoke through his apostles by his spirit. Paul knew it, Peter knew it, and the church knew it. You remember what happened after that sermon? Some 3,000 men come to faith in Jesus Christ, and we're told in Acts 2.42, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. This is the pattern for the church to this day, devoted to the teaching of the apostles because the apostles' teaching was the teaching of God. Not simply because they were apostles. You understand this, right? They didn't just listen to the apostles because they said those men had front row seats to Jesus' ministry. They didn't just listen to the apostles because they said those men can do miraculous things and so we better pay attention. They didn't do it because they had some experience in seeing Jesus at the resurrection. Those things all just gave evidence and prepared those men for this to be spoken through by God. That's why we commit ourselves to their words. Do you understand? It was because of this that through these apostles, God has delivered his perfect and powerful word of life. So in their writing and in their preaching, it wasn't just in these writings, was, it was their spoken word, their, their preaching, their teaching, the gospel they delivered. This is the authoritative word of God under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Now, I don't mean merely that they quoted the Old Testament in terms of speaking the word of God. I can speak to you the word of God. They were speaking new words. They were interpreting the Old Testament. Delivering mysteries that had not yet been told, as Paul said it. I want you to think about the way men today that call themselves Christian would respond if they had a hidden message from God, a mystery not yet known. What you find in the life of the apostles is these mysteries that hadn't yet been known, they know that the greatest way to protect them and the only way to treat them is to disseminate them to all the world. They don't hold on to these mysteries for selfish gain. They don't hold on to these mysteries so that they can build a name for themselves. They don't hold on to these mysteries so they can lord them over other men. They say, I want to impart this word to you so that you can impart it to others. You understand? So they not only worked in the authority of Christ, they spoke with his same authority and that's the word to which we devote ourselves. We're gonna get eventually we're going to come to Ephesians 2, and we're going to read these words in, in verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the corner. I read that too fast. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple of the Lord. Christ Jesus is the cornerstone. Do not think the cornerstone is somehow less important than the foundation. And yet it is on the foundation of that word, the word of God spoken through his chosen vessels, his prophets and his apostles, the word of God. That is the foundation. That is the place on which we stand. That is where we find our grounding. That is what keeps us from being shaken. 
what keeps us from being destroyed is the word of God delivered through these apostles and the prophets, these men who have been called and set apart and inspired by the Holy Spirit to deliver us this word that leads to eternal life. This is why Paul begins his letters like this, by pointing to his apostolic nature. Now, he wants to make sure that men who read these words, they understand these are not the opinions or words of a man called Paul. This is the word of God and is to be received as such. Therefore, you come to this word in complete submission. Please hear me. I understand that this is not a new concept for many of you. Those of you that have grown up in the church, you're going to hear this and you're going to say, yes, I've already heard these words before. I'm asking you to hear them with fresh ears, with a fresh heart, to hear them like you've never heard them before. You need to understand that to neglect or to reject or to abuse or to force yourself upon the words recorded in this book is to do the very same to God himself. What Paul said in Galatians 1, 8 through 9 is, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. A curse upon those who preach a word contrary to the one delivered by God through the apostles. 1 Corinthians 14, 37 to 38, if anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are the command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. Even those who claim to be prophets, even those who show signs of spirituality, certainly those who claim to be preachers or elders or teachers or deacons or any other type of spiritual leader, if he does not receive and submit to and fall down under the apostolic word as the very word of God, then he is not recognized. Church, you've got to understand that for far too long, far too many believers, they've fallen for the lie that they are only bound to keep the red letters in their Bible. Now, please don't get bashful by this. I don't like red letter Bibles. Many people do, and it's cool. There's a purpose to them. I, I understand that. But they can somehow send us the faulty indication that the red letters are somehow the special letters. How many times do you hear men talk as if they're, they're pitting Jesus against Paul? They endorse, they endorse homosexuality because they don't believe that Jesus spoke explicitly about it. That was just Paul. They reject the idea that only men can be called to be pastors and elders in churches because that was only Paul. They treat this word like some kind of a buffet. But you must understand that every single word in this book is the word of Christ. It all is mediated. It all comes through the word, Jesus Christ. Peter had been with Jesus himself, and still he refers to the words of Paul as scripture. There's not a word that didn't come in that way. Every single word, Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, by the Father, through the Son, from the Father, through the Son, by the Spirit, to these chosen vessels to be delivered to us. He could have done it other ways if he wanted to, I suppose, but he didn't. All mediated through Christ. And so you say that you reject the difficult teachings of Paul? 
you receive the loving promises of Christ? Well, firstly, I don't think you've read the words of Christ very closely. There's great talk of judgment and hell from the lips of Jesus Christ. But in addition to that, I would say very well then, you show me the book in which Jesus Christ picked up the pen and wrote his autobiography. The gospels we received were the word of God through the Son, by the Spirit, to his chosen vessels to be delivered to us. It's all the same word. It's all the same word. The word of Christ to his people. We don't get to pick and choose. This isn't, again, I say not a buffet. They all carry the same authority. So to twist the words of Paul, to reject the difficult teachings of Paul, is to reject the word of Christ. We don't get to rush to John 3, 16 and pass over those parts of Paul that make our heart and our head hurt. And so, what was the most important thing for the men in Ephesus to know? It was that this was the word of God, the breathed out word of God, demanding absolute submission. That brings us to our third and final question. What effect should this have on how we approach Paul's letter to the Ephesians? Now, church, I do hope that you realize that I'm not trying to be cute by moving slow through this book. I'm not trying to make some kind of point by only moving through six words in our first three weeks in the book of Ephesians. And the reality is that we are going to speed up as we go along at points. We're going to get to some arguments that Paul delivers that really they have to be considered in larger sections in order to make any sense. We're not going to be able to dissect every word the way we are right now in the introduction. But there's purpose in this. Purpose is that we set the stage that we get our bearings, that we set the rules of engagement before we walk through this thing. We recognize that what we are sitting under and what we are approaching every single Sunday morning as we come into this place is the word of God. And I'm afraid that for far too many of us, the word of God has just become synonymous with this physical book and we've lost the weight of that. Think about the way the world responds when some Nimrod says he went out into the desert and had a vision with God. People flock. They want to hear everything this man has to say. Dear friends, I'm telling you, with absolute assurance, you could stake your eternity on it. God is speaking to you. The living word of God for you where you are. The God who knows every single bit of who you are and what you've experienced. Your fears, your doubts, your sin, your shame, your hopes, your triumphs, what tomorrow holds. That God speaks to you in this word. If he can keep up with a billion sparrows throughout all the earth, if he can count all the hairs on every head, then he can use this word to reach into your life and give you exactly what you need. Well-timed help for a time of need. That's what we come to this morning. That's what we're going to come to every morning in the weeks to come. By the same power that God created the stars, the same power he raised his son from the dead, by the same power he's saving you, he's speaking to you in this word. Do you have any idea how precious that makes these words? What a treasure we have 
you realize there were ages and ages in church history when men did not have direct access to this word. They did not have it in their language. They did not have copies of it for themselves. They were relying upon men and their opinions and their desires to deliver that word to them faithfully. And oftentimes that was not the case. And we praise God that by his grace and by his mercy, men were still saved. That God's plans will not be thwarted by the evils of men, even men within the church. But dear friends, you understand the gift that you've been given in this word. But do you understand the weight that these words then carry? Almost every single adult in this room, you have some level of authority. Maybe it's just in your home with your children. Maybe it's employees at work. But every single one of you, you have some level of authority. There's things that you can say and they will be received and responded to simply because you said so. When we come before the God of the universe who has created all that is, the owner and sustainer, all things will be bound up in the end in him you recognize that all things must be submitted to his word, that nothing will trump his word, not your traditions, not your thoughts, and certainly not your emotions. And you've got to recognize that in the weeks to come, there will be some of you that find this word coming into direct conflict with your traditions and your thoughts and your emotions. I've already had a number of people that I love and respect that have come to me and they've questioned is this really the time in our church's history to walk through a difficult doctrinal book? Church, I'm telling you, it is a perfect time. We have spent three years as a people dedicated to this book, giving our lives to it, learning how to rightly handle it deeper and deeper and changing the culture of who we are under the working of God by the power of his spirit. There's never been a greater time to come to this book because the reality is those of you that are still here, you're here because you don't want your ears tickled. You're here because you're not looking for entertainment. You're here because you devoted your life to hearing the word of God no matter how that confronts your life, no matter how uncomfortable it makes you. So you people are the perfect people to walk through this book with. And this is the perfect time. Before everybody else finds out how much fun we're having, let's do this. I thank God for you every single day. I do. You're a weird bunch, and I love it. So I'm supremely confident that if we can come to these deep and difficult doctrines that are given to us in this letter, if we will come to them united under the singular goal of knowing and seeing and cherishing all that God is for us in Jesus Christ, knowing that we will only come to that place if we receive the word of God as spoken through Paul in its original context. What did God mean by what he wrote? Recognizing that there is incredible danger in faulty theology. Isn't that what we read in the end of 2 Peter? There's danger in faulty theology. If we will submit ourselves without reservation to these words, no matter the consequences, if we will come week after week, saying, I submit to this word and I do, not force, I do not force myself upon it. This word alone will be the authority, not the man standing in the pulpit, not my own heart, my own traditions, or what I hope to be true about God. I can guarantee you then that a time of unparalleled growth will come upon this church. Not in numbers, in our love for God and our love for each other. Even as we don't agree on all that we find here, 
We will be bound together in ways you never thought possible, even in the middle of great doctrinal differences. Our worship, our prayer, our evangelism, our fellowship can be completely transformed as we walk through this together. This does not mean that our studies will be easy. They won't. This is hard sledding that we have ahead of us. I am praying for you, and I would ask that you would pray for me. And it certainly will not always be comfortable. So we must constantly come back to the same thing. This is the breathed out, inerrant, authoritative word of God. That's where we find the authority. In the word of God. I'm being transformed by it and not the other way around. The very discomfort, perhaps the fear, maybe even the anger you feel by some of what you think this word might be saying, that might be the very sign that you're being transformed. Being reformed in the image of Jesus Christ is painful. But remaining deformed by our own thoughts and our own hearts and our own traditions and the ways of this world is no option. We can all remain comfortable as we are, if you like. We can all sit exactly where we are, believing what we've always believed about God. I understand this. There's going to be some of you that are going to want to jump up from your pew in the weeks to come and say, that's not the God I know. My question to you is, how do you know that you knew the right God? We come back to the authority. We hear his word. We submit in this. And then we walk together. For the hundredth time, for the millionth time, for the billionth time. Is Miss Heidi in here? Miss Heidi, would you clip this part of the sermon and play it on a loop? Put it on the TVs out there. Send it out via email. Put it on Facebook. For the billionth time, I'm telling you, do not believe what I say simply because I say it. If the Apostle Paul cannot claim for himself something based solely on the fact that he was swept up into heaven, I can't tell you that you've got to listen to me because I've finished one-third of seminary. And I've been a preacher all of three years. Don't listen to what I say because I say it. Test me against the Scripture. You come to the Word of God as the ultimate and only authority. And you test me there. And then when there's things that don't make sense to you, when there's things that just make you want to punch me in the face, I'm a big boy. Let's sit down. For the millionth time, I'm telling you, my office doors are open. Come see me. There's so many people in this room that have taken me up on this. I'm tempted to make you raise your hand, but I'm not going to do it. But I pray that if you would go and talk to any of these people, what they would tell you is he will receive you with grace and love. He will give you all the hours you need. I'm built for this. And it's not, oh, this is the hard part of my job. That's my favorite part of this job. Ask the people that were trapped in a five-hour gospel presentation yesterday morning up here. I will not debate you. I will not belittle you. I will not besmirch you. I'm telling you with everything within me, I long for these conversations. I will not demand that you believe what I believe. I will not pull rank or some inerrant authority. We will, we will treat each other with love and honor and respect, but we will play by the rules. And the rules are this word is the authority. 
not what we believe, not what we think, not what we hope to be true about God. And then we come to the end of our conversation and we just don't see eye to eye. We just don't agree about what we think this word means. Then we continue in love. We don't part ways. I I need to tell you guys a, a dirty little secret. Oh my goodness, is it really that time? This is important, but we're fixing to be done. Everybody that goes to the beach is terrified of sharks. You see a little fin that pops up, or you find out there was a shark attack somewhere, and you don't ever want to go to that beach. But people would be terrified if they saw the flyovers, and you realize they're always around you. I want to tell you a dirty little secret. There have been Calvinists in this church forever. There have been Calvinists in this church sitting under non-Calvinist preachers for decades. And it's never been a problem. It's never been a deal breaker. We've continued on in love and fellowship, assuming the best about each other. Assuming the best about whatever pastor God placed in this place. And I'm telling you with absolute confidence that the reverse can be true. You can be a non-Calvinist sitting under a reformed Calvinistic preacher. I promise. This isn't a thing to break rank over. This isn't a thing to break fellowship over. There are some things that are non-negotiable. The deity of Christ, the truth of the resurrection, the promise of his return. Look, I'll maybe even get in a fist fight with you over baptizing babies if you want. But this isn't the thing, man. And I'm going to assume the best about every single one of you. I'm going to assume that you are sincere, dedicated followers of Jesus Christ who are doing your best to see the glory of God and to give your life to it. I'm going to assume that you come to God's word and you don't twist it, you don't mangle it, you don't try to be deceived, you don't try to deceive others, you're not a liar, you're not a deceiver, you're just a dude doing everything possible, and a chick perhaps, doing everything possible to give your life to the God you see in Scripture. And that when you tell me I don't see that in Scripture, that you really just don't see it in Scripture. And I'm going to ask you to do the same about me. I'm going to ask you to assume my motives are pure. I'm going to ask you to assume that other brothers that believe the way I do in this church, that their motives are pure. We're not the devil. And I want you to understand, this isn't the thing that's going to decide which one of you and which one of us get into heaven. I've probably said more than I should. But. I'm telling you, dear friends, if we will come to this word under those rules of engagement, even as we don't agree on everything, every single part of the body flourishes. Every single member is strengthened. Every single member walks out of this place encouraged. If we assume the best about each other and we walk forward in a commitment to love each other, to honor God, and to allow this word to stand as the authority. Father God, we praise you and we thank you. Again, I thank you for these weird people. I thank you for the way you've created them and molded them and you just brought us all together. Father, whatever work has been done in this church, it's all of you. 
Anytime we try to jump in and take the reins, we're going to drive this thing into a ditch. So help us not to do that. Father, our desire is that you have been glorified today, that you will be glorified today, and that as we now respond in song, that the words of our lips and the meditations of our heart would be pure and true, that you would search us and reveal if there's any hidden sin within us. You would bring us to a conviction of that and cause us to cry out for mercy in the name of Jesus Christ. Father, be honored now. We love you and we thank you. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.